Well, good morning. It is so good to be together today. Good to have you here in the room. Those of you online, so grateful that you join us every single week. Those of you in our Skagit campus, glad you're with us, as well as those in Belize and around. You know, there's a kind of a ritual that happens in our house every Saturday morning. My uh, in-laws come over for coffee, and uh, we have a discussion. And somewhere in that discussion, my father-in-law will say that something along this line. It takes different forms. It happens every week. What are you preaching on this weekend? Or, and some of you who know my father-in-law understand the voice, what's your homily about? Or, what scripture we got today? So, yesterday, when he was over and he asked the question, I said, you know, I think this weekend I'll talk about Jesus. And his response was, it's a good idea, and went on. <laughs> so, I just want to say today, I think I'm, I'm going to talk about Jesus it's a good idea, right? Okay. Now, some of you are saying, oh, wait, 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 wait a second. I thought we were in a series looking at selective Psalms, which we are. And weren't the Psalms written like a thousand years before Jesus? Yes, they were. But you're going to talk about Jesus. Yes, I am. I'm going to talk about Jesus and a Psalm. In fact, I'm going to talk about a Psalm that talks about Jesus. And I'm even going to talk about Jesus talking about the Psalm that talks about Jesus. So if I haven't lost you yet, hang on. I want us to look at probably the psalm that is one of the most important psalms that you have never sung a song to. I mean, we've sing a lot of songs that were written out of the psalms they're originally songs. This one, I, I, I'm pretty much guaranteed you've never sung this psalm. I, I can pretty much guarantee you have not memorized this psalm. Most of you have never studied this psalm. Some of you have ever not even noticed it or maybe have never even read it. And yet this psalm that we're going to look at today is so important. It is the most frequently quoted psalm and the most frequently quoted scripture from the Old Testament in the New Testament. More than 22 times the writers of the New Testament reference back to this psalm. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives this incredible first sermon, to, and 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. I mean, not a bad sermon to start your career with. 3,000 people. In that, in that sermon, in Acts chapter 2, he quotes this psalm. Paul, when he writes to the, to the church in Ephesus, he quotes this psalm. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he quotes this psalm. You see it over and over again. The writer of Hebrews, I mean, he just like, he just went off. He quotes the psalm in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 7, and Hebrews 10. And most importantly, as I mentioned, Jesus quotes this psalm. And when Jesus quotes this psalm, he doesn't quote it as a prayer. He doesn't quote it as an act of worship. In fact, the setting in which he quotes it and who he quotes it to and what he implies with it leaves everyone who hears it and hears him absolutely, literally speechless. They're like stunned by what he says with this psalm. This is one of the most important psalms, and some would even say this psalm is a cornerstone to Christian theology, especially surrounding Jesus. Pretty important psalm. So much so that we're going to look at this, and, and my hope is that at the end of it all, you will have a clearer picture of Jesus and that you will fall deeply, more deeply in love with Jesus. The psalm falls into a, a genre or category of psalms called royal psalms. There's about 10 of them. And usually, the royal psalms point to the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of David, King David and his kingdom. This one, however, it talks about the identity of Jesus. 
In this psalm, we will see all of it points to Jesus. It's kind of the ID of JC in the BC. All right, we're going to look at this, and it's so important because it's not only a a royal psalm, it's a, a messianic psalm, it's a prophetic psalm. And it is so important that Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one who, you know, just revolutionized the church, he said this about this psalm that we're going to look at. This is the high and chief psalm of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, in which his person, his resurrection, his ascension, and his whole kingdom are clearly and powerfully set forth. That's how important this psalm is. And for most of us, this is a flyover psalm. Most of us wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that's my favorite psalm, or oh, yeah, we've studied that, or I memorized that one. What we will see in this psalm as it points to Jesus is that we will see Jesus as not only king, but as priest. A little bit of a backdrop on that. In Israel, there were kings and there were priests. Their roles were different. Their positions were different. What they did, not only that, their lineage, their, their uh, descendants, their bloodline was different. The priest started with Aaron, the brother of Moses. He was from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron. So you have the Aaronic priesthood. It's from, from Aaron's line. The kings were from David. David was of the, of the tribe of Judah. And you have this Davidic kingdom in these different lines. So you have these two different lines and two different um, purposes and roles, kings and priests throughout Israel's history. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that says that a king couldn't be a priest or a priest couldn't be a king. It just didn't happen. In all of Israel's history... The king was the king and the priest was the priest and that never the twain shall meet, that kind of a thing. And yet today we will see how Jesus is not only priest, but also king. As I mentioned, uh, this is a a psalm that most are probably not terribly familiar with. And I'll be honest, at first reading, it's a little bit confusing, a little bit puzzling. And as you read it, it seems a little bit militant. It could be even off-putting. And as we look at it today, there's really only seven verses in the psalm And we're going to really focus in on two of them. We'll hit one more, but really two of them we're going to dive into. And as I sometimes do, I'm going to kind of go down some rabbit trails on some of these two verses. And and let me just say this, as I mentioned before, my number one goal for you today, as we look into this, is that at the end of it, hopefully all the the, the strands tie together a nice little bow, and they end up with the Sunday school answer to everything, which is, yeah. I hope at the end you say, Jesus. But more importantly, I hope that there's something from this that causes you to see that Jesus is more beautiful, more wonderful, more glorious, more victorious, more magnificent, more powerful than you ever imagined. And something would have you take one step deeper in your love for Jesus. So I'll say this. Some of you are going to love, because I'm going to go through a bunch of scriptures and a lot of backstory and history. Some of you love this stuff. Some of you will get lost. I had a lady last night just tell me straight up, you lost me tonight. So let me say this. For those of you who will get lost, here's my challenge to you. Listen just long enough to find one little aspect about Jesus while you say, that's cool, I love him more. And then you can check out. I'm good with that. If you walk away with that one. And for those of you who love this, just eat this up. Can I just say something to you? If our love for the written word of God does not lead us to a greater love to the living word of God, we are nothing more than a literary religious book club. And that is not my goal. I would love this stuff, but if it doesn't cause us to love the Lord Jesus more, we've missed the mark. So are we clear? Yep. Some of you ready to get lost? Yes. Some of you ready to dig in deep? Yes. All of us ready to love Jesus more. 
All right, so let me read it in its entirety, and, um, and we'll start from there. Psalm 110 is the psalm we're looking at. Psalm 110, it says this. <clears throat> the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Oh. Oh. You understand why people don't embroider this with needlepoint. I don't know that anyone's ever had this tattooed on their back. I mean, this is just, you're like, what? I get it. But as you will see, it all points to Jesus. So let's dive right in. Verse one, we're going to spend some time in verse one. It says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If you were with us last week, I said there would be a little bit of a quiz on this whole word Lord, especially when it's all in caps. Were you here last week? Don't answer that unless you're ready for the quiz. All cap letters, L-O-R-D, all caps, that word Lord means what? Yahweh, right. That's when, when Moses said, God, who shall I say sent me? He says, tell them, I am that I am. This is my name. The tetragrammaton, these four letters, Hebrew letters, yod Hey vav Hey. It's where we get our word Yahweh. It's the very name of God. Whenever in your Bible you see Lord in all capital letters, that's talking about Yahweh. This one says, Yahweh says to my Lord, capital L, lowercase. That is the word Adonai, and that's a title. And Adonai generally means sovereign over the universe. So you see there's a name of God, and there's a title of God here, and Yahweh says to my Adonai, this, this Lord, all caps, says to the Lord who's the sovereign over the universe. Now, this isn't the only time this happens. Some of you are familiar with Psalm chapter 8, where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Some of us grew up singing that. O Lord, our Lord, O cap L, and all of them caps, capital L and lowercase. O Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai. It's a name and a title. It would be like, this is a horrible illustration, but I think it'll make it clear. If you were to say, O Bob, our pastor, why doth thou preachest so long? It's that kind of thing. One is my name, one is my title, position, or, or role. So when it says that, the Lord, his name, says to my Lord. Now, here's what's cool. I mentioned that Jesus quotes this psalm, and this is the part he quotes. I'll give you a little history on this, a little backstory. You find this in Matthew chapter 22. It's towards the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth. The religious leaders are trying to corner him. They, they want to get something where, that'll trip him up. They, they want to ask him questions where, where he'll stumble, where he'll fall, where he'll look stupid in front of the crowds, where it'll alienate people and all that. So in Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees get together. And they come to Jesus, probably in a very public setting, trying to trip him up, trying to corner him, trying, trying to get him trapped. And they ask him a question. They start off with this vain flattery. They say, oh, Jesus, we know that you're a man of integrity and you only speak the truth. And then they ask him a question. And it's really a political question because it's about taxes. And Jesus asks them a question, which Jesus always, almost always does. He asks them a question and he makes a statement. And when he does that, it says that they were amazed. Like, wow, that didn't trap him. So they left. 
Then the Sadducees tap in. They come in, and it says very clearly the Sadducees, what's one of the things that separated them from Pharisees, is the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. So the Sadducees come, and they try to corner him. They try to ask him a question, and they ask him a question about the afterlife, about marriage in the afterlife, to which if I were Jesus, I'd be going, you idiots, you don't even believe in the afterlife. What does it matter then? But Jesus is, is not me, which is a good thing. And so Jesus answers their question, and it says, and all of the crowd was astonished. And so they leave. It says the Pharisees saw that the Sadducees didn't have luck. They didn't have luck. So they get the teachers of the law, the experts in the law, and they send them into Jesus, and they ask the very famous question that we've talked about a lot. You know, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? To which Jesus says, the first and greatest is love the Lord your God with our, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And after all this going, Jesus says, okay, I tell you what. Since we're having Q&A today, it's my turn. Let me ask you guys a question. And this is so beautiful. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, okay, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Twitch are going, Psh, duh. This is like the easiest question. You're lobbying a softball. Is that all you got, Jesus? I mean, obviously. The son of David, they replied. Don't you know scripture? Everyone knows. Everyone knows. And I can almost imagine Jesus going, you guys are sharp. And, and starts walking away. And then does kind of that Columbo thing. Those of you old enough to remember that. Uh, you know what? <laughs> one more thing. And maybe you can help me in, clear up my confusion on this one. And then he asked another question. Verse 43, he said to them, so how is it then that David, th this greatest king, speaking by the Spirit, don't diss the Spirit, calls him Lord? And I think some of them, experts in the law, know exactly what he's talking about. Others might be going, I'm not sure wh what he's referencing. And so he says, so, so, so I'll tell you what, what I'm asking about. He goes on. For he says, David, talking about David, for he says, and then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So help me understand. If then, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Like if this Messiah, this chosen one, this anointed one that is to come is only a human descendant of David, then he would have said, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my son. But he doesn't do that. David, the greatest, David says, the Lord says to my Lord. Who is he talking about here? He's not talking about Yahweh. He's not talking about himself who is David's Lord that he's talking about? Who is this Messiah who's greater than David? Who's not just a human descendant? Who is his Lord? And I love verse 46. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
What he's saying, and he's implying, and he doesn't come out right, out right out and say it, but I think some of them are picking up on it, that this Messiah that is to come, he's a king, and he is of the line of David, but he's not just human, he's human and divine. In, uh, in December, we covered the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, went all the way through that. He comes from that bloodline, but there's something more. And what Jesus is getting at is that when David says, Yahweh said, David says, to my Lord, David is talking about Jesus. He doesn't come right out and say it yet, but he says, he was talking about me. That there is one greater than King David, and that one greater than King David that was spoken of in Psalm 110 happens to be standing in your midst. Okay, that's pretty cool. Now, let's move on. Because I said there's other people that, that speak of this. Not only does, does Jesus quote Psalm 110, but the writer of Hebrews quotes it a lot. And when he first quotes it, he's talking about the greatness of Jesus. That not only is Jesus greater than David, but he's even greater than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says, To which of the angels did God ever say? And now he's quoting Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What angel did God ever say that? This whole thing of sitting at my right hand. All due respect for those of you who are left-handed. But in that time, the whole idea of the right hand was the strong side. And to sit at the right hand of Yahweh wasn't just, hey, there's no seating assignment. And there's an empty chair here. Or we've got musical chairs. Quick, sit here. No, no, no. To sit at the right hand of Yahweh means to share an equal power, equal authority, equal rule, equality. That when he says, sit here, no angel gets to sit there. No human gets to sit there. Only the divine gets to sit there on that throne. And Jesus, Jesus is greater than David. He's greater than the angels. He is sitting right there. He is equal. He is one with God. And you see this throughout scripture, don't we? I mean, in Philippians chapter two, where it says that Jesus was in very nature God, like the core of his being was the exact same as God's. In John one, where it says in the beginning was the word, talking about Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God. Or in Colossians chapter 1, where it says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Or Colossians chapter 2, where it says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact representation that Jesus is God. And Jesus himself would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Now, some of you, maybe that's enough for you. You can check out for the rest of it, because we're going to get lost next. But when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that this one, this Messiah, is God, and Jesus is the Messiah, he is God. And he says, and sit at my right hand, not stand at my right hand, sit at my right hand. And at this point, I want to kind of turn the corner a little bit and go from his role as king to his role as priest. Now, the priests had duties that they had to perform in the temple or the tabernacle. They had to take care of the showbread. They had to make sure the lampstands were all filled with oil and they were lit. They had to burn the incense every day. They had to pray. They had to make atonement for the people. They had to do these sacrifices. These were their duties. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read, day after day, every priest stands 
and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered for all times one sacrifice for sins, he what? Can we not read? He what? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. Like these duties don't have to keep going on. He doesn't have to keep working with the showbread because he is the bread of life. He doesn't have to keep filling the lampstand because he is the light of the world. He doesn't have to keep making sacrifices because he is the final sacrifice. He doesn't have to worry about these priests because he is our great high priest. And in Hebrews chapter eight, it says, the point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. What we're talking about here when he sits down is the finished work of Christ, that it's done, that we don't have to continue. That's why we don't slaughter lambs and bulls and goats and do all that anymore. We don't have to. And listen to me. That's why trying to be good enough to be accepted by God is an act in futility because the sacrifice that makes us righteous before God has already been done. It's the finished work on the cross. Okay, so, so let me go a little bit farther down that road. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's become sin so that we might become righteousness. He's taken on this penalty, all the, the wrath of God is being focused on him. In John chapter 19, it says this, while Jesus is on the cross. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So they get a sponge, they get some wine vinegar. And it says this, when he had received the drink... Jesus said, it is finished. Now that phrase, it is finished, is not a phrase of defeat. It's not him saying, I quit, I give up, I can't take it, this is too much, I'm, I'm done. There, there, some of you will remember way back, there's a famous phrase that supposedly came from the eighth round of a fight between Sugar Ray, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto um, Duran. And at the end of the eighth round, he says, no mas. No mas. I'm done. I'm finished. No more. I can't go out there again. I can't do this anymore. No mas. When Jesus says it is finished, he's not saying no mas, I'm defeated, I'm out. He's saying no necesito. I don't have to go out there anymore. I don't need to do any more sacrifices. It's done. It's complete. It's a statement of victory and completion, not of defeat and giving up. That he is, says it is finished. Now, I want to show you one more thing, and I need you to, to put this in a file that we're going to pull back. Don't put it way back in the file cabinet, but file it because we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. So he's hanging on the cross. He's thirsty. He drinks. He says it is finished. And then it says this, verse 30, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's what I want you to put in this little file folder for just a second. He's thirsty. He drinks. He bows his head and gives up his spirit. Let me give you like a little, little quiz. Take a look at that file. He drinks, and what does he do? Out loud. He drinks, and what does he do? Bows his head, and he gives up his spirit. Let's try it one more time, because your file is a little bit full of other things right now. He drinks, and he and gives his spirit. Now, file that away. Not way, way back. Just a few back. We'll get to that. Okay, well, I got to finish up verse one so we can get on to the next one, okay? So back to Psalm 110. 
The Lord says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, to my Lord, sit, you're complete, at my right hand, your God, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What, what a cool little picture. If here it's Jesus sitting with his feet up on a footstool, like that's, like the work's done. He's kicking back. He's got his feet up. But his enemies have become a footstool for his feet. His enemies that have been defeated, that are no longer a threat, they're taken care of. I've mentioned several times, in March we were in Egypt, and we went to the, um, the Egyptian uh, Museum of Antiquities there in Cairo. And amongst many other artifacts, there were some of the, the things from King Tut's um, tomb. And one of the things that I, I thought was fascinating was a, a pair of flip-flops. In fact, I've got a picture. They probably should call them sandals, but they're really, they're, they're flip-flops. And for 3,300-year-old flip-flops, they've held up really well. But what's amazing about these sandals that King Tut wore is that on the soles of them, on the insoles there, there are four individuals lying down, and if you can see it closely, they are bound. And then on the toes, there's a layer of four different bows, and on the heel, four different bows. And as I, I saw them, first I'm like, cool flip-flops, Tut. And then I read the little explanation that this represented the enemies of Egypt. So when Tut wore these sandals, he symbolically walked around crushing his enemies under his feet. Oh, that, that's so cool. And right then my mind started going, you got to use that in a sermon. And today is that day. He walks around symbolically crushing his enemies under his feet. Now, that's what the Israelites wanted from their Messiah. We want a Messiah that will come in and crush our enemies under his feet. And here's who we want him to crush. Crush Rome. Crush the Roman Empire. Crush this government. Crush, crush the emperor. Crush all of that. Crush Rome. That's the Messiah they wanted. And Jesus said, there's a Messiah you want and there's a Messiah you need. You want one to crush your political rivals and enemies. What you need is a Messiah who will crush your spiritual enemy. Rome will come and go, but you need one that will crush something that's a little longer, lasting, something that's a little more significant, something that can do more than just tax you financially, something that can destroy you eternally. Now look at this out of Romans chapter 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, it points back to Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, and God says to the serpent, listen, you're going to strike his heel, but he will crush your head. It's this picture of, of Jesus as the Messiah, as God himself, the finished work of the high priest sitting down at the right hand and completely victorious and triumphant over the, the enemy and the, the, the powers of Satan and hell and, and sin that he sits there. All right, th that's verse one. And, and we can keep going, but, but I want to look at another verse. Can we, can we look at another verse? All right, H have I lost some of you? Go ahead and be honest. Say, yeah, I'm gone. Beautiful. All right. Enjoy the rest of your nap. Okay, we'll wake you up at the closing song. It's all good. Really, it really is. I understand that. I'm lost half the time. All right. So he does that in verse one. You see, Jesus, this Messiah, is, is, is God. 
In verse 2, he talks about this scepter, so we see that he's king. We're not going to cover that one. In verse 3, he talks about his followers. Will we follow him? He's our captain. We're not going to talk about that. But in verse 4, it says this. The Lord, there's all caps, which means the, the Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. When I thought, I thought, this is so great. Yahweh has sworn to something. When people swear, like they're like trying to, you know, because their word's not good enough, they'll say something like, I swear, and then they'll tell you what they're swearing on. I swear on my grandmother's grave. Well, what has she got to do with this? I don't understand that, but, or I swear on a stack of Bibles, as if one's not enough. Now, I swear to God, we, we always want to swear on something that's, that's holy, something that's sacred, something that's beyond. And I thought, I wonder what Yahweh swears on. If you read Hebrews chapter 6, I think verse 13, says there's no one higher, more holy, or more sacred than himself, so he swears on himself. He says, and he has sworn, and he's not going to change his mind. It's not because he's narrow-minded. It's not because he's stubborn. It's not because he's old. What he is swearing here, he says, I want you to know on authority of truth that no matter what comes or goes or what anyone thinks or believes, what I'm getting ready to tell you is an absolute, eternal, non-negotiable imperative, and I'm not going to change from this ever. And here's what it is. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay. Melchizedek who? Well, I mean, I thought the priesthood was the order of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. And now you're talking about this order of Melchizedek. And, and who is this Melchizedek? And, and I mean, where, what's, how do, what does any of this mean? Funny you should ask. Melchizedek is this mysterious figure that makes this cameo appearance in Genesis chapter 14. And it's amazing because there's only three verses, only three verses that talk about this appearance. In fact, in all of the Old Testament there's only four verses that reference Melchizedek, and we just read one of them here in Psalm 110, verse 4. Three verses. I'll summarize it for you. You can read it on your own later. Abraham comes home from a battle, and there's this mysterious king that we've not heard of ever before. His name is Melchizedek. He comes out of Jerusalem. At that time, it's referred to shorter as Salem. He walks across the Kidron Valley, which we've talked about outside of, of Jerusalem, and he goes to Abraham, and he offers to Abraham bread and wine. Hmm, where have I heard that before? Oh, I can't remember. And then he blesses Abraham, and he praises God, and then Abraham takes an offering and gives him a tithe, 10% of everything. And then he's gone. I mean, this is like early in Genesis, chapter 14. And all throughout the Pentateuch, he's never mentioned again. And all throughout the history books, he's never mentioned again. And all throughout the wisdom literature, save Psalm 110 verse 4, he's never mentioned. And all throughout the prophets, we never hear of Melchizedek. And in the 400 years of, of silence, oh, we don't hear of anybody. But it's just these three little verses. It's like there's more in the Old Testament about Tiglath-Pileser or, or Sennacherib, which again, you're, you're going... There's more about those guys than there is about Melchizedek. And then you get into the New Testament. Matthew doesn't mention him. Mark doesn't mention him. John doesn't mention him in the Gospels. Luke doesn't mention him in his Gospel or in the book of Acts. Paul in all of his writings doesn't mention him. Peter in his letters doesn't mention him. James, the brother of Jesus, doesn't mention him. Jude doesn't mention him. And then you get to Hebrews. 
And it's like the writer of Hebrews, for whatever reason, decides, I'm going to unlock the vault of knowledge and information about Melchizedek that you guys have been wondering about for 4,000 years. I'm going to tell you about this guy, Melchizedek. And there's more written in the book of Hebrews about Melchizedek than there is even in the original story. It's not at all interesting. I find this stuff fascinating. I'm glad that you came here for a nap. Let's go. Hebrews chapter 7 says this. He writes, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He has both roles here. He's the king and the priest. And some of you who are still awake will say, well, wait, wait, Bob. You said in Israel's history, there was never one individual who was both king and priest. Absolutely. This is before Israel even existed. If you'll remember, Israel came from Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel. His 12 sons become the 12 tribes. That won't happen for years. And he is the king, not of a Davidic line, because David won't be born for a thousand years. And he's a priest, not of the Aaronic line, because Aaron won't be around for 600 years. It's like he's beyond that. And then this writer of Hebrews says, let me tell you more about this mystery man, Melchizedek. Verse 2. First, his name, the name Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. That's a tough name to live up to. That's what his whole life, he's, he's known as the king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem, or Jerusalem, means the king of peace. So we have here his name. His name means king of righteousness. His title is the king of peace, and his role is priest and king. And then it gets even more mysterious in verse 3. He's without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days uh, or end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. This Melchizedek that we don't know that much about is of a different kind. He he trans, he's eternal. He transcends all the bloodlines, all the genealogies. And in Psalm 110, it says, Jesus will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, like eternal, like he transcends all that. Hebrews 7, later in verse 16, there's so much in Hebrews 7. I wish this sermon was about Hebrews 7. It's so cool. Verse 16 one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. You know, before this, you had to prove, you know, I, I'm, I'm from the, the tribe of Levi and I'm from the line of Aaron. That was, my, that was my qualifications. I can't be a priest or a high priest if unless I can prove it. That's my qualification. So it's not this one. But on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, he says, I don't need a bloodline because I transcend bloodlines. That yes, there was the Levitical tribe, and yes, there was Aaron, and yes, there were high priests. But when it comes to Jesus in the order of Melchizedek, he's a higher priest. He's above all of that. In fact, we see this in Hebrews 7 later. It says, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. Death has a way of doing that to a guy. You don't... Somebody going, is that right? That's right. When Abraham Lincoln was assassinated... He no longer filled the office of president. There will come a day when I will die. I will not be able to fulfill the role of a pastor. And I probably won't be a pastor until that day. Hopefully, we'll see. But you see what I'm saying here? There are these priests and, and they, can, they can go for life, but then they, their, their priesthood ends. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. He's not like the rest of them. There's no term limits for him because he lives forever. Back in the day, uh, it seemed like every summer, 
uh, my wife and I would get a phone call from a college student that wanted to come by, and, and I'm not endorsing any product or, or putting down any product. They wanted to come by and show us uh, Cutco knives. I don't know if you've ever had the Cutco knife presentation. Quality knives, expensive knives. And they would say, but you get what you pay for, but you pay for what you get. So regardless, so they would give their presentation, and that was pretty impressive, especially, especially that pair of scissors that cut the penny in two. That got me every time. Okay. So at the end of it, their presentation, as part of the sale, they would say, and all of the Cutco products don't just have a lifetime guarantee. They have a forever guarantee. Because a lifetime guarantee ends when you die. But with Cutco, if you buy these products and pass them on to their children, and then you pass them, they pass them on to their children, and they pass them on to their children, forever. Guarantee. <laughs> Apparently, that's the way it is. So I've got three knives I'm going to pass on to my daughters. It's going to be great. It's their inheritance. Now, I'm not comparing Jesus to a Cutco knife here. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is all the priests up to this point, they had a lifetime guarantee of being a priest. With Jesus, because his life is indestructible, he's eternal. He does have a lifetime guarantee, but it's a forever guarantee that he is a priest forever. You say, well, that's cool for him. No, no, that's cool for us. Look at this in verse 25. Therefore, because of all that, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. We'll put that in there. Intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That this high priest, this one, is our savior, our sacrifice, and our salvation. Catch this one. I gotta hurry because I'm way out of time. 4,000 years ago, Melchizedek comes out of Jerusalem, goes across the Kidron Valley, offers bread and wine, and then blesses Abraham. 2,000 years later, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, goes into the upper room, offers bread and wine, saying, this is my body and this is my blood, crosses the Kidron Valley and doesn't bless. He becomes a curse so that we can have eternal life. He would be our high priest forever. Okay, now, now I've got to... Okay. Get the file. Get the file. Okay, pull it out. Okay, here we go. Because I got it. Jesus is on the cross. He's thirsty. He drinks and he bows his head and gives up his spirit. Look at this. Verse 7. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Yes, he was the final sacrifice. Yes, he gave up his spirit. But that didn't hold him down. Our king, our high priest, our Christ, our Lord, lifted up his head, victorious, conquering the power of sin and the grave and death and hell itself. I mentioned that, that Peter used this uh, Psalm 110 in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he only quotes that first verse. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right on the heels of that, he says this in Acts 2, 36. Therefore, therefore, 
Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the king, and he is the priest, and he is our Lord, and he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And in Psalm 110, if we had the time, in verse 1, as we looked at, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He is God. Jesus is God. In verse 2, he holds out his scepter. He is the king, the king of kings. In verse 3, his followers willingly follow him. He is our captor, a captain. captain. In, in verse 4, he is the, in the order of Melchizedek. He is our highest priest. He is the great high priest for all times. In, in verse 5, he is the conqueror. In verse 6, he is the judge of the whole world. And in verse 7, he is the victorious king who raises his head and no nothing in death or hell or any of the power of any of the enemies can hold him down. He uses them as a footstool. It's all about Jesus. All of it, start to finish. This Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's all about Jesus, my friends. So for those of you who fall asleep, wake up now because we're going to worship that Jesus.